Hey, what's going on, Amcon? Mike here with my next guest, Will Harbin, CEO, friend, mega wealthy entrepreneur, <laughs> um, very savvy political guy, um, but also investor and business partner of locals, which is the sole reason why I'm on this platform is the convincing of why I should move to the platform. So without further ado, Will Harbin. What's up, man? Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. You've come a long way from your ex-girlfriend's dad's hangar. That's true. We were slumming back in the day. Yeah. So Will Harbin and I met um, in my first training course at Philcraft probably five years ago, four years ago, five years yep. ago. A long time ago. Five. Yeah, it was at least five. And um, man, you were underwhelmed and under-impressed. It wasn't that good. What are you talking about? Was it good? That was awesome. Oh. I thought I was going to be kidnapped. That's true. I responded to some random Instagram post. Didn't know who you were. It's like, hey, you want to take a survival course? I'm like, yeah, I want to take a survival course. Show up at some, I don't know, what was that? Like, it's a, like a Piggly Wiggly? A Piggly Wiggly <laughs> parking lot in the middle of nowhere and some Cadillac pulls up next to me at like 7 a.m. I think that's like, yeah, this is going to be weird. Then you roll up in your monster truck. I do remember that. That was the that was in Ione, California. That yeah. was Ione or Jackson. Ione. I like that part of Cal Northern California. Yeah. It doesn't feel like anything. I mean, you had driven. It's not like San Francisco. You'd driven from San Fran, which is only, what, two hours away, right? Yeah, about that. And then um, you arrive there, and it's like a different world, a different planet. It's like being back in Georgia. Let's talk about where you grew up in you know, I, I think you're going to bring a lot of value, especially in your perspective and working in tech, um, Silicon Valley, and then being on the West Coast for so long and then migrating the East. Did you grow up in Georgia? Yeah. So, I mean, technically I was born in Boston. My dad, who's a doctor, is a doctor. Um, he is doing his training and up there, but uh, he was from Georgia. My mom is from Virginia. And the plan was to go back for him to practice medicine in a lovely town called Rome, Georgia. So I, you know, I grew up there from age three until I left for college at 18. And, uh, you know, a lot of hunting and fishing. We had a farm. Small town. Small town, probably 30,000 people or so. You know, not a suburb of Atlanta. Um, definitely its own old school kind of southern town. You know, a main street, cool old stores and, you know, really nice people. Good place to grow up. <clears throat> very different from, you know, the places I spent after when my, you know, my life took different twists and turns, like spending 16 years in San Francisco. And then about a year and a half ago, moved back uh, to Atlanta from San Francisco when kind of the whole thing was decaying. Did you have a uh, an idea at a young age that you were going to get involved in some kind of tech interweb game based Absolutely. anything yeah so pretty transformational point in my life was in like i think it was kindergarten so i was very fortunate enough to go to a, a nice private school in rome georgia and they had a computer lab set up for their elementary school so this is probably 1981 1982 ish mm -hmm. um we had a bunch of apple twos and we had a, a teacher there that taught kids Apple basic, like actually taught us to code. This is like something simple, like making a rocket ship go up and down. But after that, I'm like, what is this magical device? I want this machine. And you know, I'm like asking my parents for a computer. And that definitely set me on a journey um, to where I thought I would do something in tech for sure. Uh, but it was you, the coding side of it. Yeah. Well, the whole thing. I mean, you know, like to fiddle with stuff, you're a gearhead, you like machines. And this was just, to me, the ultimate machine. You know, I wanted to know how it worked. I wanted to do stuff with it. Um, yeah, I played, like, video games and stuff like that, like most kids that had those things. But um, it was just a fascinating machine. It's like an evolution of, of technology. And for then, back in the day, you know, computers weren't necessarily in every home mm. like they are now. We didn't have smartphones. We didn't have handheld phones at all. Um, you know, it was, TV was typically the highest level of tech that most homes had and um, you know home PC was was really something else so it was it was a bit of a mystery so you went to college for this I'm assuming you decided to go yeah um, sort of so I spent 
a lot of my, I guess, formative years in school as a hobby, I mean, I did a few things. I played a lot of music and I would, you know, spend a lot of time in the outdoors and also kind of teach myself to code and, and took advantage of, you know, we had computer science classes at my high school and I did major in computer science at Vanderbilt, but I kind of already knew a lot of it. And I was also kind of lost interest where I didn't think I'd actually want to code. I mean, I liked the business of tech. I liked the idea of doing business. Everybody in my family was in medicine and that didn't appeal to me. I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial eventually. And tech seemed to be something that I would eventually do. But I knew that after spending actually several years coding on my free time and personal time, I probably didn't want to do that actually you know, professionally. Yeah. yeah, I'd rather, you know, design stuff and think, you know, bigger picture. What was the, uh, the first job that you got out of college? So technically my first job, uh, real job was kind of in college where I'd started a company and raised some money that didn't work out. Um, and I had left that endeavor technically before I, I, um, uh, finished college. So my first real job out of college was at a place called internet security systems in Atlanta. So they were the first pioneers in security that kind of had they're outside of like the firewall or virus protection. You know, before them, you know, security meant just firewall or virus protection. And they invented this thing called intrusion detection. So they had these big enterprise, this big enterprise system that would detect hackers or detect vulnerabilities in, in one's uh, network. And so they were real pioneers out of Atlanta. This is the onset of any of, I mean, what year is this? This is, this is like 99. Yeah, this is right when it, it's becoming a thing. Yeah, right? and, I, and when I was in college, you know, that was Internet 1.0, you know, Web 1.0, and, you know, Netscape was making airwaves. This is where, like, pre, you know, companies that were, um, companies that were doing an IPO were, like, pre-revenue or certainly pre-profit. And there was just this explosion. And I was even, I remember having a conversation with my parents were like, well, maybe you shouldn't stay in school and go out west right now with all these <laughs> other, all these other youngsters making a bunch of money. Um, I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. But we, I'm glad that I, I finished and got my degree. But I was trying to kind of have my cake and eat it too. And I tried to do a venture unsuccessfully. And we raised a, a decent amount of money, but yeah, it was a company called Media First. And the, uh, the plan was all over the map. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, and, you know, it was kind of doomed to kind of fizzle out. But, uh, yeah, so this is like Web 1.0, a lot of exciting stuff. And then I had graduated right before kind of the market crashed. You know, 2001 rolls around and market implodes. And then my company's like laying off people left and right. I was lucky to have a job. And I kind of got stuck in a job I didn't love for like four or five years. Wow. And I was trying to do a bunch of entrepreneurial stuff on the side of my desk. Um, good experience, but none of them panned out. Uh, but then I had an opportunity to go uh, join the team restarting Netscape within AOL. And that was my real kind of opportunity to work on kind of consumer internet with kind of more heavy hitters, people that had a lot of experience out in Silicon Valley. And, and then, Netscape was the browser, the re- Netscape was the first like commercial browser. I mean, there was. They used a, to send the DVD to you, wasn't that? Well, they later after AOL got their hands on Netscape, they had a Netscape ISP, and they mm -hmm. they were probably spamming you like their their CDs. Yeah, you know, it's like you know, use our dial-up service, which was not what Netscape was. You know, Netscape in the very early days, you know, early mid '90s, the internet was unusable. You had HTTP, you know, the you know just the straight. Uh, web product. You had like FTP, the file transfer protocol. You had your news server and uh, was, you had to use all these other kind of complicated pieces of, of software to actually use the commercial internet, which there really wasn't much of one. So Netscape comes along and it's the real disruptive force. I highly recommend the book called The New New Thing, which kind of talks about the story of Netscape and kind of the birth of the commercial internet. This is like the consumer interface now. Yes, yes. And so all kind of modern web browsers, you know, if you use Chrome or Firefox, you know, Chrome and you know, Firefox is actually the open source version of, you know, what Netscape was initially. So Firefox spawned out of out of Netscape. It was wow. the Mozilla project. 
And so anyway, I was, I was part of the crew that was supposed to revive the Netscape brand. And, you know, I worked on the browser and some of the other stuff. And it was just good exposure and good experience. And we had, you know, some cool patents and things like that. But that kind of launched my visibility and career to do kind of bigger stuff and able to raise money eventually for future ventures out west. So in a lot of the, I mean, I, I hear a lot of the things that you're doing. It's almost like experimentation in business, which a lot of people were doing back then, right? Because, yeah. I mean, you, you would try something, it would fail. you try something else until it was a success. And then you learned all these lessons learned. Uh, I know we had talked before about you working with uh, military.com. Yep. How, how was that experience? Yeah, so once I finally got out to San Francisco, um, I worked for Yahoo for about three months. And, and they recruited me to go, um, what I thought they wanted to, me to run kind of a, they wanted me to make a Yahoo browser. I was like, that's going to be kind of cool. I didn't like the idea of working for another big company. I wanted to eventually start my own, um, but I didn't have much of a network out there. So I thought that would be kind of a good launching pad. But um, fortunately, I didn't have to wait too long. So I got hooked up with uh, the founder of Military.com, Chris Michael, who's one of my best friends. And I met, I met, I met him right at yep, the one yeah, of my Kicksmas parties. Cool yeah. yeah, great guy. Now he's a very famous photographer, kind of retired retired from the entrepreneurial scene, but he still invests a lot. Um, so we got along, and he was in the middle of spinning out. <clears throat> He'd already sold Military.com to Monster, you know, the old job board. If you remember those guys. Mm -hmm. Had a bunch of Super Bowl ads and stuff like that. They're still kind of around, but it's like a shadow of itself. Uh, so Chris Michael started Military.com, really successful entrepreneur, and he uh, he and I got along, and he wanted to kind of do this joint venture between Monster and um, well, not really joint venture, but kind of a spin out where we'd have kind of startup like equity called Affinity Labs. Um, fortunately, for our future equity position. Uh, those negotiations failed, so we just we just decided to raise money on our own from other venture capitalists out out in, out in San Francisco, and uh, start Affinity Labs, which was kind of a bit like Military.com for, for a bunch of different affinity groups. So our our most popular site was PoliceLink.com. So we had a site for law enforcement, a site for healthcare workers like nurses for paralegals, for teachers. So we had about 30 different communities or so. But law enforcement was definitely our most popular one. Were these forum-based, like military.com? Yeah, so it was like military.com on steroids. So there was like, imagine like a, um, a mashup of like LinkedIn, Facebook, and like a news site and like mm -hmm. a forum site. Yeah. So it was like discussion boards, there's chat, um, there's community-driven news, there's editorially-driven news, there's job boards, there's a lot of offers. Like, the big thing on Military.com is the offers and, like, mm -hmm. exposing all the discounts you have as, like, a service member and a veteran. So we tried to push all those things. And then we sold that to Monster, like, nine months after we started it, which was a good, it's a nice hit. Wow. And that was my first, like, taste. Like, wow, this is easy out in Silicon Valley. Like, start a company. Nine months later, we sold it for $61 million. It's like, woo! But that's um, not how it goes. No, yeah. no, that was like fantasy land. You know, Chris Michael is a great entrepreneur and was also an incredible salesman. You know, I was much more, am much more introverted. I'm more into the product. And I learned uh, much later in my entrepreneurial career that, you know, salesmanship is something you, you definitely need to, need to master in order to kind of complete that loop. Where's the gaming come into this? So... You know, part of what drove my love for technology was, you know, playing computer games. I was playing like King's Quest and Police Quest and Space Quest from Sierra Online, if anybody remembers those games back in the <laughs> mid 80s and early 90s. Like all these RPGs like Ultima and stuff like that and the classic RTSs like Command and Conquer. Um, and my, my motivation at one time was like, I want to just make them a lot of money, retire early and play video games all day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I came to, I got to kind of a financial point in my life early where I'm like, well, you know, I could kind of take it easy and, you know, and go for that, you know, very ambitious goal of just sitting around <laughs> playing video games or, hey, I could make video games. And so there was like a big shift in the market. This is around 2008, 2009, where Facebook gaming became a thing. And, you know, there's Farmville. And it was a bunch of crappy games like that. If you could call them games, you know, we called them 
internally cow clicker games where there was these mobile or they're on browser so like you open up facebook on your desktop or laptop you know this is before the mobile app store you know the the ios app store did not exist yet um i think that came around 2009 2010 or something and um people were making a fortune um, capturing billions of people playing these games on Facebook. Facebook built this gaming platform. And I thought, well, I could take my love for gaming and my knowledge of like the Facebook ad platform, which we used a lot for affinitylabs.com and knowledge of like social networking and create like a real game company on top of this. Like I, I'm a gamer, I use Facebook, but I see all these crappy games. None of them are for me. So I wanted to make like cool games that I would play. So like, you know, we, I love war strategy games. So we wanted to make war strategy games. So. I was going to start a company from scratch. Instead, I found these two guys in London <clears throat> that had this company called Casual Collective. They had the chops, but they were running out of money. Um, and so I took them, restructured the company, raised some more money, and then created Kixi. And uh, that was in November 2009. And big roller coaster. I mean, we we zoomed that company up to like $200 million a year in revenue with some really big hit games. Like in the first three years, our game Backyard Monsters was super popular. Clash of Clans is basically a complete ripoff of that game. So that spawned like hundreds or thousands of copycats. So we kind of made our mark, but then the Facebook platform completely failed and mobile took over. You know, we were we were we were kind of last man standing and we had to kind of scramble to shift. We still had a you know, we had a solid company, created some Cool mobile games, War Commander, um, Rogue Assault is pretty popular. A lot of people play it. Um, we sold the company about a um, year and a half ago and then spun out to a new company. So, yeah, I spent the last 11 years or so now in games. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, that's kind of the it's kind of the high level. How, doing something like that in San Francisco, I mean, you lived in San Francisco your life. I've been to your your company before mm-hmm. it's like on the what floor is that it's like pretty high up there it was like the 20th it was that 20th high. floor overlooking it and um it's funny you had the security guard with like an m4 <laughs> well, that was for a real reason yeah yeah i mean it was it, it 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 almost seems like when i even visited your company things were things were kind of falling apart in san francisco yeah um, it started with Occupy Wall Street. That's where it's yeah. things what year was that? Involved. 2010, 2011, 2011, I think. Okay. Yeah, that's when we started hiring security and private security. Because of, because of the way people were looking at big corporations. Yeah, people thought we were bankers and invaded our office from one of the Occupy Wall Street pro- protests. And like, I just rounded up the biggest guys in my office to like, hey, I need some help. We need to get these guys out of here. Yeah. And they're like, oh, we didn't know you were a video game company. That's cool, man. Sorry. It's like, get the <laughs> fuck out. Can I say fuck? Yeah, you can. Um, um, so, um, yeah, the next day, Andy in full full camo shows up with a gun, you know, and, and Andy was with us ever since. Yeah. Um, he's a good dude. He's a great dude. He's still out in California. You you told me once that you got poop flung on you. Yes. And, and when I remember that story, which is a hysterical story. Um, because you got something thrown on you, and you're like, well, you didn't know what it was, and you actually touched it, and then you smelled it. I thought it was it. like melted chocolate. I'm just glad brain. you didn't taste it. You weren't like, mm, this is definitely not chocolate. What is this? And uh, then you smelled it. That would have been bad. Or did you taste it? You're just not letting it No, I know. smelled it. So you smelled it, and it's like. I think I smelled it. I touched it. Well, I'll just tell the whole story. How about <laughs> that? It's like I'm driving. If you're familiar with, if anyone's familiar with um, San Francisco, there's a not-so-nice area called the Tenderloin. And it's kind of, you have to pass through it to go through Soma to where I lived, which was in Russian Hill. I was like cruising one Sunday, windows windows down, guns and roses blaring, <laughs> and there's like a crowd of homeless people, and they probably didn't like our vibe. Cruising like GNR, my, man. My nice, my nice BMW. And I did see them fling something, and I didn't pay attention. And I got home about five minutes later and parked in the car, and I'm, opening the door handle and I look on the sill, you know, sill. I'm like, oh, what is that, chocolate? And I touch it. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's poo. That's poo. <laughs> and i like, what do I do? What do I do? I don't want to touch anything. Oh, my God. You're holding your hand. Oh, yes. You're like, oh, God. Put a plastic bag around it. Oh. It was bad. So that, that's that's kind of like where things start falling apart, right? You have 
it's it really started influence. to evolve. And you know, there was a time where I thought San Francisco was like the greatest place ever. A lot of really smart people, awesome restaurants, good vibe. And when I moved there, it was like a cheaper alternative to New York. I didn't want to live in Manhattan where everything was too cramped. And that was more for finance. And, you know, the entrepreneurs kind of went out west. And actually, when I put the Kixi office in San Francisco, that was a bit of a, you know, that was a bit of against the grain thing because people were still mostly putting their offices in the valley, like around Palo Alto or Menlo Park mm -hmm. or San Jose. Like our office space was relatively cheap. Like I got what would be considered class A, you know, high rise space in downtown financial district for less than what people were paying for their crappy warehouse you know, wow. exposed brick kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, not the case up until COVID crashed everything. Um, but yeah, it was like a, it was like a dreamscape, you know, walking out of the ferry building every Saturday, go to the farmer's market, you know, perfect weather. It's like Peter Pan land, nothing ever changes. And then, you know, it got more crowded. The local government there got worse and worse, just electing complete idiots. Um, I mean, it just devolved and devolved, devolved. And you, you know, it's just, it's a whole 360 degree spectrum. And I'd say, you know, backing up, when I moved to California, I probably had some left leaning views. I was always, you know, definitely, you know, quote unquote, fiscally conservative, whatever the fuck that means anymore. I don't think anyone in, in government is fiscally conservative. That's, I think it, that's, that's right. Dead. Not since yeah. like the freshman Congress of like Republican Congress of the early 90s has that ever been a thing. But um, yeah, I'd say some of my views definitely took a hard right turn after witnessing the failures of the local government there and seeing you know, home invasion after home invasion. Uh, when I first moved to San Francisco, I lived in a place called Potrero Hill. And when the 2008 crash happened, when unemployment spiked, you know, lots of auto theft, lots of home invasions. On my block, one Sunday, there was like five consecutive home invasions. Wow. My home was the only one that wasn't hit, I think, because of our entrances more exposed to the street. All the other ones had kind of more concealed interests and entrances. And that's, remember, like someone would call the cops, the cops would come, the cops would leave, and then they'd hit the next house. Like so they were watching the cops, like observing from like the hedges or whatever. Wow. And just brazen. And one morning I walked out my car. I, for some reason, I didn't put, put my car in my garage. I walked out. It's on center blocks. It was just crazy. Wow. Crazy. So brazen. Like there's just no. Just totally brazen. They shot my neighbor's dog. Jesus. His golden retriever. Um, it, was, it was totally brazen. When you're, when you're living in a world like. And that was the good times, by the way. I mean, that was like. That was before. Years, it that was got 10 years ago. To what it is now. Yeah. You're living in a world full of. I mean, most for the most part, Silicon Valley in San Francisco is really liberal. And you have guys like you who maybe have conservative values and ideology, but you're immersed in this world surrounded by people who were, in some cases, fanatical about their uh, liberal ideologies. How do you operate? How do you, how do you navigate that world? I'd say most people stay quiet about it. I was loud about it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think my approach is to never be ashamed of, of one's views and, you know, wear them proudly and wear your values proudly. And I think where a lot of people get in trouble is they try to toe the line and try to be hidden and it's like they're caught with something and they give people power over them to control them by shaming them to believe something else or they shouldn't be believing something. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I never wanted someone to have power over me of beliefs I held, which are crazy beliefs about individual liberty and <laughs> rights to self-defense, you know, just leave me the fuck alone. Oh my God, I'm such an extremist. Um, <clears throat> look, I mean, my, my general view is pretty moderate, I would say. Um, you know, it's just, it's primarily about leaving people alone and letting them do their things and lead their lives mm -hmm. and, um, you know, enforce the constitution on the government, um, and keep it as small as possible. That's not going so well. And, uh, the problem is there's a lot of people out there, um, especially in San Francisco where they simply just want to redistribute resources and wealth. And you're fucking evil if you want to put, you know, pump the brakes on that. Um, 
you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't run for office. I wasn't like uber politically active. I mean, I would be forced to support certain, you know, the, the, um, you know, the lesser of multiple evils in San Francisco and took more of an interest in local politics. And then I just realized it was just a fool's errand. But, you know, how do you survive out there? It, it is hard and it became increasingly more difficult. And I don't know if my approach that I take now would still work out there because I definitely saw so many people get canceled uh, for their beliefs. And I think the ones who got canceled almost allowed themselves to be canceled. And it's like they're giving uh, certain people in the press power or other people very vocal. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I just I, I never let – I never let anybody have power over me, if that makes sense. Um, you, well, you started talking to me about this cancel culture and the ideology because I was having multiple strings of running into obstacles where accounts were getting ca- canceled, and then, then I lost my Shopify, which is pretty impactful. But I, you had told me early on, I mean, the early onset of this happening, probably over a year ago, like, hey, man, you should look at this thing called Locals. Yeah. Because I was looking for, even before all this became a popular thing, I was looking for contingencies, alternative platforms to be able to harvest uh, and grow my following but uh, keep my content and not be canceled. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Locals is the way. And I'm like, when I first heard Locals, like many people I know, I'm like, what What do you mean, Locals? Like, it's like a dating app? Like, it's a, it sounds like a dating exactly. app. Um, but I, I just didn't do it. I had looked at other alternative um, uh, applications that were getting more attention, like Parlay and you know other platforms like Discord. And you're like, Locals, Locals, Locals. You, you have a, a business relationship with Locals uh, as an investor, as a kind of a, a consultant slash business partner, as investors often yeah. do. Um, what, what, what made you want to be involved in that? that made it different than any other thing that you've seen? <clears throat> yeah, so, I mean, I definitely, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a prolific angel investor. Um, I typically have l- primarily give money to my other entrepreneurial friends. I mean, most people I give money to are friends first, entrepreneurs second, um, uh, you know, people I trust, and, you know, the, the idea, I, I invest in people for the most part, but, in terms of the idea, kind of created an investment thesis around, you know, if I'm going to put money to work in some of these things, I want to make sure that it matches my worldview, which is around liberty and lack of censorship, uh, freedom of speech, which is not just an enumerated uh, protected right in the, in the Constitution. I think it's ethical. It is ethical to allow people to talk. And we can get into this a little bit, but you know what Twitter and some of these, you know, what people are now referring to as the big tech cartel, it's unethical what they're doing. So, at least in terms of my worldview of ethics, you know, I wanted people that at least expressed um, or that respected one's you know, freedom of speech first and foremost. For, first and foremost, because there were already a lot of people getting kicked off of platforms. Um, yeah, some voices were relatively extreme, but. Great. We need to hear those voices, um, not people calling for violence or whatever. But um, it's amazing how this uh, this notion of hate speech and all of a sudden this is the Venn diagram or the circle of hate speech has become arbitrarily very large. And it just seems subjective and arbitrary of what, quote unquote, constitutes or what constitutes, quote unquote, hate speech. And I was looking for kind of more rational independent entrepreneurs that were politically moderate that wanted to build platforms that would protect those rights. And I thought that would be a one, it's a winning strategy from a business angle because I, I thought there would be some sort of migration at some point where some of these guys went too far. And two, it simply just matched up with my worldview. And so Locals was something um, that another friend of mine who's more of a professional investor sent my way. I'm like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for. And, um, you know, looked at some other stuff, had had some uh, discussions with the parlay guys, but, you know, the investment was not really on the table, more just a discussion to help those guys navigate some certain things, which I was happy to do. Um, but, yeah, locals kind of fits the bill where 
it's not trying to be this right-wing platform. It's trying to be something for everybody. It wants to be mainstream, and it doesn't want to exclude people like you in American Contingency or Fieldcraft or whatever. And that's the kind of balance that I'm looking for. Like, I don't want to, you know, fund a bunch of just exclusively right-wing, um, you know, tech because I'm not, I'm not in that demographic. You know, I, I want to kind of bridge the middle, and I, I, I like having dialogue and discussions with both left and right. And that's what's going to make things interesting. There's nothing great about just making another echo chamber on the right. You know, Twitter's becoming a left, left-wing left echo chamber. And it's not going to serve anybody if we just also have an alternative echo chamber. Like, we need something that's mainstream. And I think, you know, locals is not going to be a big viral um, consumer platform because that's not how it's set up. It's kind of more like the alternative to like a Patreon or something, but plus plus. I mean, they're doing a lot of really cool features and it's allowing you to make a really great community. But um, no, it resonated. So both from kind of an investment thesis standpoint and from kind of my personal worldview approach of kind of what's ethical and respecting liberty. I think the part, you call it parlay, it's pronounced parlay actually, but uh, parlor or parlay one of the things I even coined it the parlor effect because when I was on that platform, it it felt like an echo chamber, right? It's all oh, the yes. same feeds, all, all the, the people same who got kicked. Shit. It starts it starts with all the people who got kicked off from Twitter. Yeah, you know? and so when you're in there, it's like I, I'm looking for diversity. I'm looking for the yogis, the nerds, mm-hmm. the tech, the science, and then all you're getting is. People screaming and yelling, and, and there there are exceptions, right? I include myself, who's just kind of observing and navigating these accounts. But it it was the, I mean, it became the detriment of itself because when you have that, um, and I don't know how he was this at was this uh, publicly released that the how they targeted the guys on the guy the Capitol Hill guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, the, the hack. So I would make sure it's not like some some. Uh, uh, private conversations. No, no, it might be in the no. That was publicly released. Okay, so um, they targeted them, right? They, they, the the hack. Well, do you tell me how did it unfold? Yeah, so I mean, you know, Parlay has a few issues. Number one, I mean, I don't have enough data, but it does sound like there was some sort of coordinated effort to shut down Parlay among you know Google, Apple, and then Amazon. But um, before it got shut down. Um, you know, some obviously pretty talented hackers uh, got in there, created some, were able to kind of create a fake admin account or something and download all of people's deleted messages. And I think that Parlay used, uh, had people upload their driver's licenses to verify their ID and then match those and found, I guess, violent threats among the deleted messages and then sent that with the, the IDs to the FBI. Which is how those guys got rolled. Some up of them, but it's also there. important to note. I think it was like the first twenty people, uh, for, if this is quoted correctly. First 18, 18 is the number in my mind. First eighteen people arrested uh, were from Twitter messages. Um, so it's not like all these violent protesters were exclusively using Parlay. And I don't know if any of them were or not. I'm I, I don't know enough, but um, I, I'm pretty sure that um, some of the people were found through Twitter. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, there's there's a few problems with Parlay. One, they know ha- they don't have any mobile outlet now. I mean, yeah, you can use a mobile browser and use their website if the thing was up. Um, two, they got kicked off of Amazon, and there are, all, are, are a lot of alternative cloud services that could also build their own infrastructure, like Gab has done. Um, the DNS thing is easy, and there's some I'm sure there's some other third party services that they need to replicate or or use. But the big problem is now they've got user trust. Like, who's going to want to use that platform if you know that their tech is not up to snuff and plug security holes where someone can just come in and download all of your deleted deleted messages and, um, <laughs> and download your, your driver's license and send that to the FBI? Like, you know, even if you're not doing anything criminal, <clears throat> um, you know, that's people deserve trust and privacy. So... Look, it's a really tall, it's a tall order to, to kind of make it in this market and compete with these guys, even if they're not out to get you. Like these, let's say that Parlay was not taken down by Apple and Google, and they're only dealing with this one, you know, hack. Like that's still enough to shut, possibly shut down a company. So, um, but I think the good news is, 
through all this is, you know, hopefully some of these guys are swinging so far to the left uh, that what we're now seeing is, you know, what's, what I'm hearing referred to as the big tech migration. You know, I, I think in 72 hours, 25 million new Telegram accounts have been created and all these new channels have been opened up and people are using Signal and probably more content creators are coming to locals and things like that. You know, this is the free market at work. Now the question is, uh, will the App Store, Google Play Store take down Telegram? Um, will AWS shut down other sites that they don't like? So that's, that's the big worry. And then you get into, you know, the libertarian side of me is like, well, you let the free market rule, but then uh, at the same time, you know, what should be deemed a public utility and what shouldn't be? Like, there sh I, I do believe in some form of regulation because once you get to these, this, the size that these companies are, you could certainly argue that some of them are monopolies. And, you know, what was the burden for a phone company to become a public utility or a gas company or a power company or whatever? Like, I would argue that Twitter, Facebook, Amazon have reached that scale to where there needs to be some sort of regulation to where they can't kind of play publisher and can't play kind of moderation or they lose their, you know, um, uh, you know, 230 protective rights or whatever. So. And where do you navigate from? I mean, Every single logical person on the planet who sees this taking place looks at these platforms for the most part and goes, hey, man, even – I mean, when you have other countries that are socialist in many ways looking at what's happening and going, you can't just delete the president of the United States because you don't like what he's well, saying. This is what's crazy. So you have – I think Germany came out first and then France and then now Russia is like, hey – we're going to dissent a little bit on the fact that Twitter just deleted the president of the United States. We're not okay with that. When Russia is not okay with that, I think there's something very, very wrong. Yeah. And um, is there a path to getting it fixed? Because I don't see, I don't see much legislation, uh, legislative think, talk about it. I think um, European countries will sue Twitter. I think states can file lawsuits. Um, I don't. I don't think the Biden administration's DOJ is going to do much, um, and that's what I'm worried about. You know, I'm worried that. I mean, God, how brazen is it to do it to to Trump when he's actually still the president? Because they know that the Biden. They know something that other people don't. They've probably had conversations with the Biden administration. They're like, "You're good. Don't worry about it. You know, yeah. we're not going to come after you." So I think if there's going to be any mounting pressure against these guys is going to have to come from um, the states and other countries and those will have teeth and there will be you know there will be price to pay and maybe from that and also they're losing users you know um, it's not like I was an avid uh, Twitter user um, I've been on telegram for the last five years or so and uh, there are people they're gonna jump ship and go to other places and this and, and I love that this is an opportunity you know, this is a disruptive opportunity for some people to take advantage of you know maybe parlay does not recover but someone else will probably pick up their slack because mm. parlay's possibly failed on other areas they didn't just fail on not being able to navigate with you know the, the tech cartel overlords but they also clearly didn't build very good tech let's just call a spade a spade like that's just blatantly um, negligent and um, just, you know, they just didn't, they did, they didn't build a good software product. If, if someone was so easily able to hack their system and download deleted messages and people's um, driver's licenses, and they probably weren't spending a whole lot of time on it. It didn't sound like it was very well secured at all. So, um, you know, there might be a better tech team that comes out and creates something better that becomes the new mainstream and that, re that values, you know, people's rights to free speech. It doesn't selectively implement kind of the rules and policies. Like that's the biggest complaint I have about Twitter and what's going on is that they seem to be very selective with what they're enforcing, what they're not. And that makes it very dangerous. And that's why every content creator, um, every real contributor to that needs to be nervous and have a mitigation plan or move off of it now. Like, you're pretty good, you know. You've you've got a, you know, very healthy, fry, thriving two locals channels, and they're growing. Um, but you know, also locals needs to take 
a lesson from this and be like, okay, where do we, what do we need to mitigate? What, what do we need to have as a plan B? Because you never know when they're just going to come in and delete you. Like what's going to, that's what's so scary about this. Like when your Instagram account got taken down, some random moderator in where Ireland did it. Yeah. The thing is like a lot of these executives of these companies that I know a lot of them are very reasonable and very middle of the road. Like, um, when I first moved to Silicon Valley, uh, I was invited to a Chris Christie fundraiser held by who? Mark Zuckerberg. Hmm, interesting. Blowing minds right now. You know, Mark is a, is a very rational, smart guy. And I think I'm sure he, he gets a lot of pressure from, you know, his thousands of employees who are not as rational and moderate. Um, a lot of them very left-leaning. I mean, you've got Google, some Google employees that just formed a union. Like, you've got to deal with a mob over there. Yeah. And you've got moderators that are subjective and then have power and sometimes too much power. It's not like Mark is, you know, at the keyboard and like, I'm going to go and, you know, turn this guy off. You know, he's not making these decisions. And, and you've, when you, you've got a bunch of humans in the chain and it creates something, a very inefficient, you know, um, a very inefficient process and so you don't really know what they're thinking and what really the corporate policy is because what are corporations it's just a bunch of humans it's not necessarily one singular consistent uh chain of command or line of thought um and you know of the executives that i know for the for the biggest and best internet tech companies most of them are very rational smart human beings otherwise they wouldn't have been able to navigate to where they are today but you've got very complicated companies with tens of thousands of people in them, and you have to kind of delegate responsibility. And sometimes these things just get out of hand. I mean, I would like to kind of, I hope, you know, through that this this parlay lawsuit to Amazon, I hope some of this is made public and this this lawsuit goes through, so we can see if there was sort of any real coordinated collusion of how these guys operate and communicate. If anything, if it was above board, then good. We see that there's no boogeyman. They're not out to get everybody who has an alternative point of view. Um, but th it's hard to defend that, though, when someone like Ron Paul just got deleted, I think, from Facebook, or he, got, he lost account access. I need to research that more. Like, that's scary. That guy's a pacifist. He doesn't want, he doesn't, he's never called for violence in his life. Um, you know, I, I can understand, I mean, look, half the country absolutely hates Trump, or I guess a little more than half hates Trump. And a lot of people hold the view that he incited violence. And you know, I'm not going to debate that. Um, you know, he's, he definitely, a lot of stuff comes out of his mouth that should not come out of his mouth. And, you know, he has his, his self to blame for what I could only call implosion over the next, over the last few months. Um, but... You know, they're, they're taking him down. They took Ron Paul down, but then they leave, uh, say, Don Trump Jr. up. You know, if they were really trying to root out everybody, then they would just do it. And maybe they are. I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to kind of see. But it is kind of scary that you have so much power held by so few people, and they're not being held to task around some basic government regulations. And they're, they're flagrantly, in my opinion, violating their Section 230 protection. Um, which if they play moderator, then they lose their protection around certain things and expose themselves to a lot of civil lawsuits and things like that. Or they, they have to be responsible for the content that's posted on their site is basically what it means. And um, that's what I'm mostly concerned about. But I hope that this is an opportunity where the free market works. Uh, but it's an awfully tall ladder to climb here it's like oh well you don't like you don't like this app we'll make another app well parlay made an app and the app got banned so it's like what are you supposed to do you're supposed to make a fucking phone company and a phone and an app store and then you can make the content that you want like like what part of the united states tech stack is protected like part of it needs to be utility otherwise it's not a fair market mm -hmm. um and so what do you? What's your thoughts on this idea of, you know, the civil discourse that could evolve into uh, violence? Because you know we had talked about the Capitol Hill thing, and you know people think I, I've never seen so many 
articles written in a such such a short short period of time about the far right, right? Yeah. And it, it, it reminds me of the the Clinton years where um, then Janet Reno was targeting everybody who looked like a supremacist, right. which Waco and Ruby Ridge and all these things turned out. I mean, like a lot of people died because yeah. of this. Um, and then I look at what to me looks like a protest with fanatics who did their little dances, depending on who they were. Yes, people got killed. That's that's unfortunate. But it's so Mickey Mouse in the context of like this strategic military oh, it's, operatives it's, that are going it was, in. If it was a coup attempt, it was the most pathetic coup attempt yeah. in the history of, of humankind. Yeah. Like I think we have a number of severely disenfranchised groups in this country. And if you've been tracking it over the last couple of years, and of course you have, and you're, you're the expert in this department, but we continue to see escalation of violence. <clears throat> you know, truthfully, I didn't think that that crew <clears throat> would ever get out behind their keyboards and off their couches and motivate to even go somewhere, you know, much less protest, much less walk into the Capitol or force themselves in the, in the Capitol. And I think we should all be worried um, because any form of real civil war, and by the way, I think we already are in the midst of World War III and a civil war, but it's not conventional like what, we're, what you're used to and what you're trained for. It's all information. It's all data. Like there are probably, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of hackers engaged in war that are you know, funded by the state. Um, Russia's got hackers, Iran, North Korea, China, we have them. And they're engaged now. They're engaged now. Constantly. They're, they're atta constantly attacking us. We are in World War III now. It's just invisible to most people. And, um, you know, civil war has already been happening online. It's, you know, the great meme war of 2020 <laughs> or, or whatever. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite something to see so many people... Um, and kind of unexpected. You know, we saw in the summer with the BLM riots, people are going out and burning down stuff, taking over city blocks in Seattle. And then now you have, how many people showed up at the Capitol? Hundreds. Hundreds of thousands. Yeah, it was, was estimated. Jesus Christ. Hundreds of thousands of people show up, not only show up to the Capitol, but force their way inside. And they, you know, they clearly didn't really have a plan. They get inside, what do they do? They take selfies. I know. A guy smokes a joint. Like, and um, yeah, there was some loss of life, uh, terrible. Um, the cop got killed. I think there was some guy who tased himself in the balls. Died? He was trying, yeah, he was, yeah, he was trying to steal a painting. Wow. Is this true? Do you know about this? Trying to steal a painting? He was trying to steal a painting, I think. I don't know if I read this correctly, but he had a taser. I guess he was keeping it between his legs while he was trying to grab wow. this and like clenched and fell and killed himself. Wow. Yeah, uh, that woman, that Air Force veteran who got yeah. shot in the head, and then I don't know what the fourth one was. Um, uh, but um, tremendously bad on a number of reasons. Um, and now you have National Guardsmen sleeping in the Capitol Hill. Yeah, like 20,000 National Guardsmen. Uh, Airbnb canceled all reservations in the D.C. area for inauguration. They're just trying to clear people out of it. And now everybody's on edge, and we'll probably see more violence escalating and and this is why you know we should strive to not have all these echo chambers like we need mainstream platforms that allow people to vent online and like let them have their facebook fights instead of you know going out there and killing each other in the streets but um yeah i think look we ha we have a big melting pot of a country um there's a lot of fragmented groups a lot of people that have very different views, and now we have very disenfranchised groups, partly spurred by a lot of globalist policies that we've had. You know, I think you know we have to have a, a rational amount of globalism and a rational amount of nationalism in terms of protecting jobs. Otherwise, like, what do we do with the soon-to-be two and a half million transportation workers that are going to be out of work when we have fully automated trucks that are shipping across the country? No more truck drivers. What happens to them? Well, they're probably going to be pissed off and raiding capitals. You know, that's what happens. Um, you've got, you know, some, um, you know, people respond to these things. 
And um, that's what I'm worried about. You know, what, what do we do? Like, we can't stop innovation. We can't stop free markets and the economy going around. But at the same time, we can't leave tens of millions and maybe at some point hundreds of millions of people behind. You know, what do we do? Um, and that's, uh, I don't have answers to that. I, I think it's a, there's, there needs to be a certain amount of things, I wouldn't say protected, but we should have policies that reward things being made in America. Um, and we should also make sure that we're investing in more STEM education to make sure that the future workforce is, is educated and prepared for kind of the new world. Um, we're looking forward, and there's not much, you know, from a government standpoint and public education standpoint, there's not really much of a link of like, okay, let's, let's think about what this country needs, uh, you know, 20, 30 years in the future and think about how to retool our, our public education system. It's none of that. It's terrible. And, um, you know, we just have, and we need to have more middle ground here. It, things have gotten so polarizing. So it's either you're either for or you're against immigration. That's stupid. I mean, somehow the only way to be for immigration is you also have to be for illegal immigration. It's absolutely stupid. It's a complex issue. It's not that complex. Mm -hmm. It's like illegal immigration should be illegal. That's off the table. There yeah. should be appropriate channels. But you know, we should be out there trying to find the best Americans. That's what we should be doing. Like, how do we make America like truly great for for the people that live here, and the people that want to come here? Okay, well, if you bring some skills to the table, uh, awesome, you can come in. And certainly, we should have a program for refugees and things like that. But we can only we need to kind of enforce a quota because if we take them all, then it, the entire country implodes. But we need to have a more thoughtful. Um, you know, discussion about immigration because we don't have all of, we don't have all the, the job candidates in this country. Like construction, super scarce. Tech, super scarce. Like we need H-1B visas because we're not training the engineers here. Like that's, a, that's the problem. And then it's just unfortunate over the last several years that immigration only became about illegal immigration. You're a terrible fucking human being if you're against illegal immigration. Like where did that come from? So, yeah, that's just one example where, you know, why we need kind of a mainstream, you know, communication platform that doesn't censor based on political thought, because we need to solve these problems. We need to have like rational conversations and middle ground. And it's, it's funny because I think what in the 90s, I think both Democrats and Republicans were pretty much on the same page on immigration. Nobody wanted illegal immigration. I mean, Biden was like, no, illegal immigration. Uh, Clinton, no illegal immigration. All of a sudden it's like, oh, you're terrible if you don't want to let everybody come in who wants to come in. Mm -hmm. so illegally. It's, illegally. It's, it's crazy. So, um, yeah, it's just, I, I see you know, the population being further segmented into echo chambers is a very bad move for, for everybody. What does the next four years have in store for us being a realist about oh our God. circumstance, I mean, especially for you. We had talked about this as an entrepreneur, uh, myself as an entrepreneur over the next four years, there's a lot of proposed segments of policy that are going to affect a lot of people in a lot of negative ways. Yeah. Next four years, dogs and cats living together, complete hysteria. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, yeah. The tax code could could be very bad for entrepreneurs. I mean, they're talking about making capital gains the same as income, um, which I just, I can't. I mean, there's even some lunatic who wants to tax uh, gains on, on, they want to tax unrealized gains. So let's say you buy, a, let's say you buy Tesla right now. Um, you don't sell Tesla, but next year Tesla's up 200%. The government wants to tax you on that, even though you haven't sold the stock to make those gains. Mm. That's, that's absolutely idiotic. I mean, I don't think something like that's going to get passed. I mean, they want to mess with kind of the top income brackets or at least put them back. They want to put the corporate tax back to where it was from, you now it's like 21% to 28% or something. Or is it 23? I can't remember. Um, and mess with the state tax and mess with capital gains and all these things I think are very bad for any sort of economic recovery. And they're not really thinking through. Like they're going to push through some massive spending bills 
Um, I mean, what's debt now? No, no branch of government or no party seems to give a shit about debt. I mean, the last four years we're discussing for debt, same with the last the four years prior. I mean, they're all basically the same. You know, George W. Bush, Obama, Trump have all added massive amounts of debt. I don't think the next four years are going to be any different. Um, and there's no end in sight into that spending, especially in the circumstance we are now where we've had these arbitrary, I will say arbitrary lockdowns, like the cost of the lockdowns are way worse than COVID. COVID is a nasty pathogen, as you can attest to mm-hmm. um, personally. Um, and vulnerable people, vulnerable people do need to you know, stay away from it at all costs until they're vaccinated or whatever. Um, but I mean, California shutting down outdoor dining. I mean, what in the hell? And they're putting so many people out of work. So I think it's still it's going to continue to be a bad time for the non anywhere. So I heard this term the other day on some podcast or some video where you've got the anywheres. So typically can the members of the elite, like I can be anywhere I want. I can run my company from anywhere I want. And everybody in my company is, is tech. Like they plug into the VPN, they can do their work remotely, you know, e-commerce people, no big deal. You know, you've got companies that are doing extremely well right now. Mine's, you know, one of them we're in video games. Like this is the best time to be in gaming. Um, but then what about people who work in, you know, brick and mortar retail, they work in, um, uh, restaurants, they work in kind of brick and mortar entertainment, you know, the non anywheres and they're getting screwed. So, um, you know, we need, we need investment dollars. As soon as, as soon as these things are open back up, we need investment dollars to flow very freely into these things. And I can just see segments and the only bright spot of our economy right now is really the, the public markets. Um, you know, that's on fire. So the credit markets are crap. Um, money's, you know, money's basically flowing into, uh, into equity markets. And we could see that take a serious hit if all of a sudden people's capital gains taxes are doubled. And I don't know, people might leave the, you know, the super wealthy might leave the country. Like, it's just, it, it could be a big mess. I mean, I hope they're really thinking this through. Um, in some cases, people hope that, that, that they overreach and then we have a rebound to the other way at some point. But I think it's, we're in for a pretty volatile you know, four years. Last question is, you know, you're, you've trained with me since the beginning of the origin story of my company. And you've been into firearms. I mean, you grew up with it in Georgia, hunting, fishing, doing all the outdoor activities, and then you're into tactical equipment, gear, and self-defense, right? Yep. You, you have the, the right uh, weapons for self-defense. They, the Biden-Harris administration has openly and overtly stated that, especially Kamala, uh, that they're going to take uh, specifically AR-15s yep. and any assault weapons, um, even threatening executive action on that. What's your stance on the Second Amendment as it pertains to your life? And how do you see that unfolding as an administration that is probably going to infringe or overstep uh, constitutional rights? Well, look, I mean, I think my personal beliefs can be summed up. You know, what's the phrase? I think, you know, gay married From couples. From cold, dead hands. You know, no, <laughs> gay married couples should be able to protect their marijuana plants with AR-15s. I mean, mm-hmm. that's my that's my basic <laughs> philosophy i just leave people alone and people they're their fundamental ethical rights one you should be able to speak and be heard uh two you should be able to defend yourself um i don't think any it's a losing proposition i mean if anything through all this civil unrest it's for many we have what another five million new gun owners in this country just in the last few months or more um I think the Second Amendment argument or gun rights argument has gained a little bit mo- momentum because now people realize that the cops might not be there to help you. Mm-hmm. And I think there's less popular support for it. Two, look, we have the, uh, the Heller decision that's pretty clear at the federal level uh, that you can't ban commonly owned, commonly used weapons. AR-15 clearly falls into that. And we have a, you know, I would say we definitely now have a more 
pro-gun majority in the Supreme Court. Um, so we have some protection there. Uh, you know, the, the, the Senate, for the most part, is split. I, I don't think that there's going to be any big uh, changes that need legislative approval uh, that will impact gun rights, is my hope. Um, and it'd be a real shame if it was, because then it's like, why are we even in this country? They're going to tax us to, de to death. They've taken our rights. We don't have freedom of speech anymore. Like, why are we even here? Like, what is this republic anymore? So, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm very pro-gun. I think people should be able to own bazookas. I mean, that's the, that's the gist of it. Um, and I think, you know, the government should fear the people. And I think right now we've, we're more on the, uh, the people fear the government too much. The government is too big. And it would it'd be a real shame if there are more laws that are passed to try to strip people of their rights. I just don't see that happening. I think there's not enough of a, of a majority where, peop, where senators are going to commit career suicide um, for those things. And look, the, we, have, we have 10 years of data of this BS assault weapons ban that did nothing to curb crime. Well, one, because not many crimes are committed with them mm -hmm. in the first place. The majority of them are owned by good law-abiding you know, ethical people that just want to protect themselves. You know, this is not about arming in an insurgency. I don't want that point. I don't, I don't ever want that. I don't ever want it to come to that. Like, this is about self-defense. And the AR-15 is an extremely effective home defense weapon, period, full stop. You know, I think if you said to me, the point of a pistol is to get to your rifle. Like, it's not a, it's not a great home defensive weapon, um, especially if you're if you're dealing with a lot of people come into your home or something like that or some of the scenarios that you've possibly you know warned about and help people prepare for like at the end of the day this is about defense this is you know i don't want to join a militia i don't think anyone wants to join a militia try to overthrow the government like that's not what this is about the government is 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 us like it's part of us let's try to have these conversations and reshape it so that some element of liberty is restored free market is restored, but also we, we think about protecting the vulnerable and deal with these disenfranchised groups that we have in this country that are, that are going to be a problem if we continue to ignore them. And that's the, that's the real shame of this. The, the, the shame of the, the takeaway from the Capitol riot slash attack is that people came in um, unlawfully and engaged in violence when where if they had not gone into the capital maybe we would have heard a message like let's think about why they're pissed off why are they angry same reason why there's been a lot of good conversations from the blm riots i mean there were a lot of there are a lot of a lot of destruction um but you know maybe it will lead to some policy changes to where some of those people aren't as pissed off and there's maybe more training and more funding for cops. Unfortunately, we had kind of the wrong takeaway. It's like defund the police. No, it should be the fucking opposite. It's like more funding, more training, more community outreach. And unfortunately, I think we're hearing kind of a lot of um, opposite messages and a lot of this is fueled by the media. You know, the media has kind of been outdated, basically. What is journalism now? It used to be we went to... We went to the media for our basic information. We can get basic information through a lot of channels now. So it's like journalism is now filling a niche to be kind of entertaining and salacious. So everything now that we're seeing on a headline is um, 10x more dramatic than it needs to be. And they're, it's like they're not incented to push truth or be rational or calm or um, boring. Like for the most part, we don't hear any boring news. Is there any boring news? Is there any boring headline? No, yeah. everything's exciting. Like that's what drives views and clicks and this is what helps make my you know, world go around. Like I need to buy ads, I need people to click, I need eyeballs at a certain place, I'll buy ads there. It's about emotion. So um, yeah, we're, we're seeing kind of the wrong outcomes being driven. Like the, the message is not getting across. Like BLM happens, defund the police. No, it should be the opposite opposite what get rid of police what the fuck yeah like where did that come from the dumbest thing ever yeah what who wants that i don't want that um but uh yeah we got some problems in this country but you know i think for the most part look everybody needs to appreciate that we're a lot better off than 
99% of the world. And America is a, probably a better place now than it was 50 years ago for, for most people, I would imagine. Um, and um, still the greatest country on earth, you know? You could I say it's, so. the, it's the worst country except for all the other countries. So True. we got our problems, but we can fix them. Will Harbin, thanks for your insight. Thanks for As having me. As always, any closing thoughts? I love you, man. I love Keep you. Keep it up. I love you. I love that sweater, too. Thank you. That's so San Francisco of you. Is that Georgian or is that? But you're wearing our new survival. You're one of like a few people on the planet who got one of my field crafts. I'm a beta tester of the survival it's, shirt. It's a Ralph Lauren design shirt, man. It's a big deal. It's very nice. People very are nice. like hating on Ralph Lauren because they're like, oh, Ralph Lauren. I'm like, dude, Ralph Lauren's been around for Ralph Lauren is a years. great American designer. It is. Period. It is. He is he's, he's a phenomenal entrepreneur, visionary. Yeah, absolutely. Who, who hates on Ralph Lauren? Well, it's just associated with all these other, again, big corporations, bad. It's like... Uh, Last time I checked, that's that's what we want to drive in a capitalistic society. Yeah, absolutely. That's the success we're trying. That's the metric we're trying to identify with. Oh, man. I don't know if I'm depressed or happy. I'm somewhere in between now. I tried like, to end with happy. Like, look, we need to appreciate what we have, too. I mean, yeah. I'm I mean, appreciative. I mean, look at us. We're just drinking our cappuccino. You have an American flag silhouetting this, you. In this beautiful new yeah. studio you have. It's amazing. And think about how far you've come in the last four years. You can't do this in any other country. Yeah. I was like a broke E8 in the Army, not making much. Mm -hmm. And here I am. Like Now you're a broke entrepreneur. Now I'm a broke entrepreneur. <laughs> Jesus. Welcome to the club. It's know, fun, man. man. Thanks so much, Will. Thank you. Appreciate it.